Wednesday, December 5th, 2012, episode number 28 of the Football Nation Today podcast with Alex Reamer on footballnation.com. Another edition of the Football Nation Today podcast, hosted by yours truly, Alex Reamer, published every Wednesday on footballnation.com. And for your downloading convenience in the iTunes store, please subscribe to the Football Nation Today podcast and the other shows on footballnation.com in the iTunes store if you have yet to do so. We have a big, big show planned for all of you today. I mean, we do every week, but this week in particular, because of course we are entering the final quarter of the 2012 NFL regular season. And as we head into the December schedule, coming up momentarily in the first down segment, where we look at the biggest on-field NFL stories of the past week, I look at the top five storylines heading into the final four games around the league, including what promises to be a race for the ages atop the NFC East, uh, the Patriots and Texans battling for AFC supremacy this Monday night, big showdown there. Uh, Last week on the show, I proclaimed the Steelers would not win a game without Ben Roethlisberger. I forgot to add uh, a caveat to that, and that caveat, of course, uh, was uh, unless Joe Flacco and the Ravens throw up all over themselves, which they did last Sunday in Baltimore, so I wasn't wrong. I just forgot to add that caveat, and (laughs) no, in all seriousness, all right, you got me. I was wrong, but the Ravens really gave that game away. We'll talk about by far the biggest Pittsburgh win of the year and its effect on the AFC playoff picture as well. Uh, The NFC, Atlanta, seems pretty locked in at the one seed. But then it will be a wild ride for the two through six seeds. We'll talk about that. Some big results in the NFC, including Colin Kaepernick versus Alex Smith. The debate rages on. And Andrew Luck, there is no quarterback controversy in Indianapolis. He led the Colts to another last-second win last week. In the fourth down segment, it's the Reamer rant. I tell you what's been uh, festering at me uh, over the past week. And uh, today, it's a rant on grown men who act like teenage girls at a Justin Bieber concert whenever they talk NFL. I'll explain in the Reamer rant. You won't want to miss it. A nice, lighthearted end of the show and a petty end to the show, yes, but it's the Reamer rant. What do you want from me? Um, and then, of course, in the second down segment, where we talk about the biggest off-field NFL story of the week. We will discuss the fallout from the tragedy in Kansas City last weekend. And yes, I think the word tragedy is appropriate to use for what occurred. Uh, In particular, we'll talk about the uh, question, is it okay to use a horrible event, like what happened last weekend, the murder-suicide, as a jumping-off point to a discussion about a greater societal topic, like Bob Costas did last Sunday night, uh, using the murder-suicide as a jumping-off point to talk about gun control. I'll answer that question in the second down segment. It's Football Nation Today, episode 28. My name is Alex Reamer. We will not have any bumper music in between that the opening of the show in the first down segment, we will instead use these 10 seconds as a moment of silence for all who were affected by the tragedy in Kansas City. We'll be right back. Okay. Now it's tough to get to the football, but let's get to it here. In the first down segment, looking at the top five. NFL stories as we head into the final quarter of the regular season. And to me, one of the top stories, especially after Monday Night's Thriller, is what promises to be a race for the ages 
atop the NFC East. Um, I made a pledge to myself when I was preparing for the show uh, that I was not going to spend any more substantial time talking about the 3-9 Philadelphia Eagles anymore. Uh, their train wreck was fun to watch for me and fun for me to talk about for the first three months of the season because I actually kind of predicted it. I didn't think it would go quite this badly for them, but I did have the Eagles missing the playoffs for a second consecutive season when some others had them actually capturing the Super Bowl, so keep that in mind, and I mention that because, of course, I'm wrong about an awful lot, so when I'm right, I like to rub it in your face. Um, but bottom line, the Eagles are a 3-9 team, and I don't talk about 3-9 teams. I don't talk about the Jaguars that often, don't talk about the Raiders, don't talk about the Browns. I don't spend too much time concerning myself with the St. Louis Rams or teams like that because they're just not worth my time. I have a limited amount of time with you folks each week, and I prefer not to spend it talking about mediocrity. So, no more. We're going to hold off on any substantial Eagle conversation until the offseason, when big changes will most certainly be made there. And Andy Reid did announce this week that Nick Foles will be the starting quarterback the rest of the way. Michael Vick will be on the bench. Um, but I do have to say this quickly, watching that Sunday night game at Dallas, wow. I mean, is that the worst secondary in football or what? I mean, and you look at the names, Namdi Asamoah, Dominic Rogers, cromartie at corner. I mean, they have their safeties have to be better than the way they've been playing. They're not even close to the football. They are nowhere near the football. I mean, the Cowboys receivers, I understand Des Bryant is one of the most physically gifted wideouts in the game. I understand Miles Austin, when he's healthy, is built like a truck, and he's hard to bring down. But my goodness, I mean, come on. The Eagles players, corners and secondary, were nowhere near any Dallas wide receivers on Sunday night. Nowhere. Des Bryant had a play where he went like back and forth, back and forth. He ran just a, just a straight line across the field before finally finding a path. Nobody could bring him down. It was atrocious. And with the talent out back there, oh, absolutely inexcusable. But we're not concerning ourselves with the Eagles. They're 3-9, and nine, and the train wreck continues. It gets worse each week. Um, the Giants are 7-5. and five. They still lead the six and six Redskins, Redskins, excuse me, and Cowboys by uh, in the division. Um, I was quite impressed with Washington on Monday night. I want to give their defense some credit too before we have a splooge fest over Robert Griffin III. Um, they got pretty good pressure on Manning and came up with some big plays. They had a big sack late in the second half. Uh, I thought the secondary played well. They were around the football. D'Angelo Hall. Had a good game of cornerback. A Cedric Griffin, I read earlier, now suspended for four games. Uh, Griffin, I thought, played well on Monday night. So that could be an issue going forward for Washington without one of their better players in the secondary. But I thought the defense battling a lot of injuries. You know, characters out. A couple of other key players are up. But London Fletcher continues to be the focal point of that defense at the middle linebacker spot. Routinely atop the league in tackles every season. Uh, a lot of people are going to be talking about the offense, and rightfully so. But... I do want to give the Washington defense some credit. They were quite poor to begin the season, and as the years progressed under Mike Shanahan and the coaching staff down there, they have gotten progressively better. But of course, Robert Griffin III has mesmerizing talent. The most impressive thing to me, I agree with John Gruden, what would you know, is the way that Griffin sells the option. I mean, he's a, he's a real triple threat quarterback when you think about it, when he's selling the option, because he could hand it off to the running back. He could throw it deep, or he could run it himself. I mean, that touchdown pass to Pierre Garçon in the red zone, the fake handoff to the halfback, Griffin then rolls out of the pocket, 
So the Giants are fooled twice. Justin Tuck and the defensive lineman bit twice. They bit first on the running play. Then they go, oh, shoot. Griffin's going to come outside. And then, nope, Garcon wide open over the middle of the end zone for the game-leading touchdown. Uh, it's a dynamic offense. Griffin is a mesmerizing talent. What a joy to watch. Uh, the Redskins are unpredictable on offense, to say the least. And that is possibly one of the bigger compliments you can give an offense in today's NFL. The ability to be unpredictable is so valuable. So many teams strive to be unpredictable. So few teams are unpredictable. Uh, but the Redskins are. You never really know what they're doing because of Griffin's abilities under center. Uh, the Giants also did beat themselves to an extent on Monday night. I'm not a big fan of taking victories away from teams because it's tough to win in this league. You know, if you win, you did a lot of things right, no matter how ugly the win is, which we'll talk about in a second about the Patriots and Dolphins last Sunday. But the Giants did not play their best football on Monday night in Washington. They committed nine penalties, including one on their last drive of the game. They forced a Washington fumble. Chase Blackburn and others got in there and made Alfred Morris fumble. Eli Manning then completed a third and tenth to tight end Martellus Bennett, who caught a touchdown earlier. But then due to a penalty, it was called back. Giants are faced with third and 20. Dump off to Ahmad Bradshaw, drive over. And it's amazing to me, you know, why the Giants seem to have these kinds of lapses in the regular season is a mystery to me. Because I think they're so well coached. I put Tom Coughlin among the top five coaches in the league with two Super Bowl victories, both over Bill Belichick. You have to. Don't you? But the Giants continue to have these relatively severe lapses in the regular season. And now we're getting towards the end of the regular season. And because the Giants have lost some winnable games, and I would put the game on Monday against Washington certainly as a winnable game, um, they're now in a dogfight. The rest of the way in the NFC East, you look at the schedule remaining, they play the Saints, Falcons, Ravens and Eagles at home. Giants have to take care of business. You know, I mean, the Falcons, that's not an easy game. They may not have the one seed wrapped up two weeks from now. They may go as hard as possible, and Atlanta's a great team. To, uh, only one loss. The Ravens will almost certainly be in a fight in the AFC in the second to last week of the regular season, possibly still playing for that first round bye. Uh, the Eagles suck. We covered that, but... I mean, those are all winnable games in theory, especially the New Orleans game. Baltimore, I would say, against that defense should be winnable. But the Giants can't be counted on to win the games they're supposed to win, which may bite them now, where it, which may kick them, uh, hit them where it hurts, I should say now, at this point in the season. They don't have any more breathing room, really, over Washington and Dallas. Uh, speaking of Washington, they play Baltimore next at home. We talked about this last week about how the Ravens really could establish themselves with wins over the Giants and Ravens, both games at home. Uh, then they play, face Cleveland and Philadelphia. That should be two wins for them. Um, and they play the Cowboys at home. And that could be a major, major game, obviously, with a lot of playoff implications, NFC East, last wild card, etc. Uh, you look at Dallas, Cincinnati, Pittsburgh, Saints, Redskins. That's a real tough schedule, especially the next couple of weeks. Um, you know, the Bengals are right in the thick of things at 7-5, and five, right there with Indianapolis and Pittsburgh for one of the last two AFC playoff spots. Uh, Pittsburgh will have been Roethlisberger back. He's scheduled to return this upcoming Sunday against the Saints. Um, so those are two difficult games, two very difficult games. And, of course, the last 
game against the Redskins could be, you know, win or go home. And, you know, I know the Cowboys have the same record as Washington, but I just don't have a lot of faith in them. I mean, Tony Romo recently passed Troy Aikman as the Cowboys touchdown pass leader. Great. But to me, Romo, when you look at his numbers, you look at his track record in the playoffs, you look at his track record in, you know where I'm going with this, December, the month we're in now, not impressive to say the least. He's a loser, more times than not, when the games matter the most. And I look at the Dallas defense. They have a lot of talent on that defense. I think Rob Ryan is a good defensive coordinator. I like him in theory. But how do you still allow 33 points to that Philadelphia team on Monday night? That defeated, downtrodden Eagles team, playing backups now at many key positions. How do you do that? I mean, I don't know. The Cowboy, the Cowboys and Redskins both have to go at least 3-1 and one to catch the Giants and win that NFC East or challenge for that NFC East or put themselves in a good place for the final wildcard spot. You know, if the Redskins and Cowboys go 3-1 and one, and for whatever reason they don't catch New York and they somehow miss out on the last wildcard due to tiebreakers, I don't have all that in front of me at the moment, unfortunately, then they can say, you know what, didn't turn out well. We missed our goal to make the playoffs, but ultimately, we put in a good fight. Down the stretch, we played as well as we could have played. 3-1, and one, nothing to be ashamed of. You think the Cowboys are going to go 3-1 and one against the Bengals, Steelers, Saints, and Redskins? I have no faith in them down the stretch. I think the Cowboys and Tony Romo, at their core, are a 500 team. And I think they'll go 500-2-2 two two over the next month. One team that does not struggle in December is the New England Patriots. Since 2010, Bill Belichick is undefeated in the second half of the regular season. And the Patriots play the Houston Texans on Monday night in Foxborough. The game is for the AFC supremacy, as I said in the opening of the show. Even though if the Texans win, yeah, they're still one game ahead of the Patriots in terms of record. But I think the Patriots are playing better than the Texans are right now, quite frankly. And thus, if the Patriots win on Monday night in a head-to-head matchup, even though the Texans still technically have a better record by one game, Patriots have the head-to-head against them, I like the Patriots as the best team in the AFC. And, you know, it's the Patriots got a huge gift in terms of their playoff standings with the Steelers beating Baltimore last Sunday because now the Patriots do the tiebreakers are actually the second seed over Baltimore and the Denver Broncos. How that how does that work since they lost to Baltimore? I don't know, but over Den but they're over Denver and Baltimore right now. They're the two seed. And you know, if the Patriots beat the Texans on Monday night in Foxborough, should be a freezing cold mid December night. Um I think that one seed is really up for grabs. Houston has two games left against the Colts. I don't know, but the way things have been going this year for Indianapolis at home, I think it's feasible that Andrew Luck could pull something out there against the Texans. It'll certainly be a tough game. And I like the Patriots in all their remaining games. They do play San Francisco the following week, which is another big test for them. That Niners defense is a hard-hitting physical defense, exactly the kind of defense that has given the Patriots fits over the past several seasons. But, I mean, I look at the Niners, and I know it's difficult to do this, Every game is different, but, I mean, the Patriots blew doors on the St. Louis Rams in London earlier this season, and the 49ers tied St. Louis and lost to them in overtime last week. So, 
I think the Patriots are a better team than San Francisco, and then the following two games are divisional games. Uh, those shouldn't be a problem. Um, now, I think Houston is legit. You know, I don't want this to come off like I'm dismissing the Houston Texans. Uh, both teams are battling injury problems. You know, I mean, Jonathan Joseph should be back Monday night. Uh, Brooks Reed and Brian Cushing at linebacker, both out for Houston. The Patriots on defense will still probably be without, uh, excuse me, star rookie Chandler Jones. Um, offensively, they'll be without Julian Edelman placed on the IR this week. Rob Gronkowski should st will still be out. Uh, their two best offensive linemen, Logan Mankins, Sebastian Fulmer, their status remains up in the air. So both teams will be heading into the matchup on Monday night uh, pretty banged up. And the Texans team that takes the field on Monday in Foxborough, the Patriot team that takes the field Monday in Foxborough, will not be the same teams that take the field in January if the two are to meet again. But it's still a great game. The game of the year, as far as I'm concerned, are definitely in the top three. Um, but again, I think the Texans are legit because they have the high-powered offense that is necessary to win. I wouldn't say Matt Schaub is an elite quarterback, but I would say Matt Schaub has elite weapons and Andre Johnson and everything else. And I would say Matt Schaub is certainly good enough to win. I would say the Texans have an elite running game with Arian Foster. I think they are, again, like Washington, unpredictable on offense, which is what every team aspires to be. And defensively, they've had their hiccups over the past couple weeks. They held the Titans to 10 points or something like that on Sunday, so they seem to get back on track. But, um... I think Houston has the playmakers, especially if they're healthy. I mean, J.J. Watt, I'll talk about it earlier, is a borderline MVP candidate. He really is for what he's done at defensive end. Uh, Connor Barwin, someone else who's really grown into his own. The Texans have a defense that may surrender some points here and there, and I think they will against an offense like the Patriots, but they can make the big plays, and they're a hard-hitting physical defense as well. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if the game Monday night is a real hard-hitting you know, it won't be 17-14, but 24-21, a score like that certainly would not surprise me. Uh, but quickly on the Patriots. I haven't spent a lot of time the past couple weeks talking about the Patriots because, frankly, they've blown doors on teams who they're much better than. But I am loving the way the Pats have been playing. Uh, they won ugly in Miami last Sunday, but it was the good ugly. And what I mean by that is the Patriots won by doing what they haven't done to win over the past handful of years. They won by playing defense and closing out the game by running the football in a nearly seven-minute drive. I mean, look, if the Patriots won 43-29 in Miami last Sunday, we wouldn't have learned anything. We've seen that before. We know the Patriots can win that kind of game. And the Patriots won their 10th NFC East, AFC East title in 12 seasons, but the way they did it was good ugly. They won by defense, forcing some turnovers, getting some key sacks. Gerard Mayo's late blitz late totally stands out in my mind. It's a spectacular play. And they ran the ball well in the second half. Wasn't there in the first half, wore the defense down, the war of attrition, and they ran it down the Dolphins' throat in the second half, especially in that last fourth quarter drive. And, you know, the offense wasn't really there in terms of the passing game for the Pats on Sunday. Uh, Brady only threw to two guys, Wes Walker and Aaron Hernandez. He only targeted Brandon Lloyd once. Um, why? I'm not sure. You can't go into a game only planning to throw to two guys. But the Patriots needed that running game to close it out. And with their two best offensive linemen out, Mankins in particular, they still did it. They ran it down their throat to win the game. And the Patriots' defense has become much more aggressive. I cited the Mayo Blitz in the fourth quarter against the Dolphins on third down. Uh, Trevor Scott forced a fumble on one of his sacks. 
earlier in the game as well. Scott's played well in place of Chandler Jones at defensive end. Uh, Hightower played well on Sunday. Uh, there is a lot of talent on that defense. Will Fork was amazing. I mean, Will Fork, Dan Deardorff loves Vince Will Fork, and rightfully so. Deardorff, after every play, was showing us where the nose tackle Will Fork was, and he's, he's all around the football. He recovered the fumble forced by Scott, and, I mean, you look at, you don't want to run against the Patriots, against the teeth of that defense, against Vince Wilfork. And you look at the talent on the defense, you know, Vince Wilfork, first-round pick. Gerard Mayo, first-round pick. Uh, Chandler Jones, when he comes back, first-round pick. Dante Hightower, second-round pick. Brandon Spikes, second-round pick. Akib Tlaib now, first-round pick. Devin McCourty, first-round pick. Uh, you know, on and on the list goes. That Patriot defense is pretty talented. There's a lot of top, you know, there's a lot of top picks. You have top 60 picks on that defense. And that's why they were so maddening to watch earlier in the season. Because they could have been much better. They are much better than what they showed earlier in the season. They're not an elite defense, not by any stretch. And I still have a lot of concerns about the secondary against a good quarterback, which we'll see on Monday night. But the game plan is different. Belichick seems to be taking much more of a hands-on role with the defense. And it certainly is for the positive. They're more aggressive. They're forcing the issue and doing what you need to do to win on defense in the NFL today. Force turnovers and blitz the quarterback at opportune times. So I figured I'd give you a lowdown on the Pats, because of course Patriots-Texans a great game this Monday night. Steelers-Ravens played a good game last Sunday, and the Steelers got a bonus win without Roethlisberger. And with that win, they have cemented a, you know, it's an interesting situation. The Patriots, to use them as an example, several years ago, actually tanked a late regular season game so they could get Jacksonville in the first round of the playoffs. Yes, versus the other opponent. I forget who it was. Because of how the seeding worked out, Jacksonville, even though they were an inferior team, was going to be the five seed. Well, I can see a similar situation for, you know, whoever's going for that third or fourth seed in the final weeks of the season. Because Indianapolis may be the fifth seed, Pittsburgh may be the sixth seed, but on the road, both wildcard teams obviously go on the road in the first round. Who do you want to face? Indianapolis or Pittsburgh with Roethlisberger, Troy Palomalu, and everyone else back? I mean, I love Andrew Luck, but come on. I'm going with the Steel. I'm going with... I'm, I, I'd rather face him than the Steelers, and it's not a diss. It's just a fact of life right now. He's still in his rookie season. That Colts team is still coming along. So we could have a situation now, because the Steelers won on Sunday where we may have teams tanking down the stretch to face the fifth seed Indianapolis rather than the sixth seed Pittsburgh if the standings were to hold today. Um, the Ravens moved to 7-5. and five. They no longer have that first round by either. The Steelers play the Bengals in two weeks in a big divisional matchup. Cincinnati still hasn't shown they can beat. They could beat Pittsburgh or Baltimore. That's interesting to watch. Uh, somehow, someway, Charlie Batch, a quarterback for the final week, or at least Steelers fans hope, hope so, had a completion percentage of less than 50, but the Steelers still won the game. Somehow they made less mistakes than the Ravens did. I mean, I look at this key play in the fourth quarter. Batch threw an interception to Ed Reed in the end zone. Absolute momentum killer, right? Interception in the end zone. You don't do that. But then Joe Flacco fumbled on the next possession. What is that? Flacco played terribly in that game. Bad interception. Bad fumble after the Ed Reed pick in the red zone. Awful. Awful. 
And the Ravens have been through a lot this season. The Torrey Smith tragedy, the injuries to defense, Ladarius Webb, Ray Lewis, who apparently is going to return to practice today, Wednesday. Um, and that defense has improved without those players as the season has progressed. They have a good defense still. Ray Rice is one of the best running backs in the game. They have decent playmakers at receiver. Anquan Bolden, Torrey Smith, Dennis Pitta is a pretty good receiving tight end. They have enough weapons on offense where they should be much better than what they are. But they aren't. Because Joe Flacco remains the man under center. But a big win for the Steelers have a big effect on the AFC playoff picture in December. The NFC will be a wild finish 2-6. through six. Anyone, this is top storyline number 4, anyone from San Francisco, Chicago, and Green Bay has a realistic shot at that number two seed. The Giants at seven and five are the five seed, and Seattle currently is the sixth seed. And you know, I look at the way that the NFC is shaping out. Um, the key date, for Seattle at least, could be December 14th, next Friday. Those are the appeal dates for corners uh, Richard Sherman and Brandon Browner, who are, of course, appealing their performance-enhancing drug suspensions. Uh, so, December 14th is the day. If Sherman and Browner are suspended for the rest of the year, I have a hard time envisioning Seattle making the postseason, which is why it's very important for them to win this week's game. And they did win last week's game with Sherman and Browner at Soldier Field against the Bears. I thought the Bears really missed a big opportunity, obviously. They fall back in the pack now after a stellar start to the season. That defense has a, hell, has a lot of playmakers. Julius Peppers, Lance Briggs, you know, Charles Tillen, they're battling injuries now in the secondary. Erlacher may be out for the year, and I know Brian Erlacher isn't the player now. He once was, but I think emotionally, Erlacher's loss would be a huge hit for that linebacking core and that defense. I'm a believer in this intangible. It might be crap, but I think a Hall of Fame caliber player like Brian Erlacher, at the end of a season like this, when his team has a legitimate chance to reach an NFC title game or a Super Bowl, which, you know, at this record, the Bears do. I don't think they will, but they do. They have to be considered an NFC title favorite. Um, I think a guy like Urlacher could find something extra to light to light a fire under him for the final stretch run of the season, maybe the final stretch run of his um, acclaimed career. And he might not have that opportunity. I think his absence will hurt Chicago on defense. It may hurt them greatly. Um, but, man, you know, I also don't think Chicago will win because I don't think they have the offense to do it. I don't think they have the quarterback. I don't think they have the offensive coordinator. Jay Cutler has the arm, but I don't think he has the brains. We saw his great throw to Brandon Marshall to force the game into OT, but when it comes down to it, I still think Cutler makes the wrong decision. He's done it before. Mike Tice, to me, is not a big thinker enough. He isn't. You know, I saw what he did with Jason Campbell at quarterback a couple weeks ago, Monday night. Jim Harbaugh threw with Kaepernick. Tice ran Matt Forte into the teeth of the Niners' defense, right into the teeth of Navarro Bowman and Patrick Willis, and it failed miserably for uh, Chicago in that game. I go over to San Francisco, and I look at Kaepernick, my boy, who I also backed last week quite uh, confidently on the show. He was called for a safety after running backwards from his own 17, I know it wasn't supposed to be a safety, but what are you doing running backwards from your own 17? Come on. And then he flipped the ball into his end zone on a pitch play. Rams scored. There's the eight points right there that sent the game into OT. 
Rams kick the field goal to win it. Who's Jim Harbaugh going to go with a quarterback? He's got to go with Kaepernick this week against the Dolphins. He has to. Maybe if Kaepernick struggles again against the Dolphins defense, you know, Cameron Wake's a great player. They have some playmakers there, as the Patriots learned. Um, maybe if Kaepernick struggles, you head into New England, you change, you put the veteran Alex Smith back. But you proclaim Kaepernick's the guy as recently as last week. I know you're still complimenting Smith, and that's well and good, but you got to stick by your guns. You can't chicken out. You can't coach scared. And I don't think Harbaugh coaches scared, which is why I think he goes with Kaepernick undoubtedly this week against Miami to start. Um, and he should, because again, I still think in my heart of hearts, Kaepernick is more dynamic, can do some more things, and can give the Niners a better chance to win than Smith. I just do. Um, Andrew Luck, by the way. I know, Rob Griffin III was spectacular again in prime time this week against a great team, the Giants, super defending Super Bowl champs. I know. And I know Andrew Luck only plays crappy teams. I know the Colts don't have a signature road win, but I don't care. Luck led his team to another last drive win against the Lions. That fourth down play call to Donnie Avery. What a stroke of genius by whoever surmised that. Oh, bravo. Luck steps up, rolls out of the pocket, throws a bullet to Avery on a slant pattern, untouched into the end zone. I know the Lions stink on defense. But Andrew Luck continues to show his leadership abilities, his gravitas, which, you know, to me, of being this drum for a while, is maybe the most important thing a quarterback can show. So we talked a lot of football this week. I mean, we'll continue the on-field conversation. We have the third down segment coming up, the big up slowdown, and then the Rima rant, which I think you guys will find kind of humorous just because of how it really shows how messed up I am and just how petty I am and why I'm as miserable as I am, because I don't let small things like this go, but I do want to change the tone a bit to discuss the uh, tragedy in Kansas City last weekend, and I, again, I think tragedy is the appropriate word to use for the murder-suicide that that occurred. Uh, linebacker Javon Belcher, of course, shot and killed his girlfriend, Cassandra Perkins, at their home on Saturday morning, then drove himself to the Chiefs facility and shot himself in front of GM Scott Pioli, head coach Romeo Cornell, and the linebacker coach as well. Uh... Belcher reportedly thanked the coaching staff for giving him an opportunity. He was 25 years old, third year at the Chiefs organization, a University of Maine product. Uh, I don't know, as freshman playing at UMaine, if he envisioned himself playing in the NFL. I'm sure he didn't. Chiefs picked him up. He worked hard, and he thanked Chiefs personnel for the opportunity before committing suicide in front of them on Saturday morning. Um, apparently, more backstory has come out. It will continue to filter out because as a society... We're a little sick. We're obsessed with a lot of these things. The backstory, because we always like to know why. You know, why would somebody snap like this? Uh, apparently, Perkins and Belcher had been arguing. And, you know, that's really all I care to know about it. I'm just not that curious. You know, I don't need to know that Perkins was out late the night before at a movie or that Belcher slept over another woman's house. I don't I don't need to know that. I understand why people want to know it, and I understand why the media is reporting on it, because we all want to know why. You know, why would somebody snap like this? Why would somebody act in this manner? I understand that. I just don't personally care to know. I don't find it particularly interesting, so I'm not going to speak about that. Um, what I do know is, or what I can guess, is Belcher certainly snapped, realized his error. I mean... His mom was present, and he apologized to her, and, you know, then drove to the Chiefs facility. Yeah, he apologized to Cornell and Pioli and thanked them for the opportunity. Then he turned the other way and shot himself. Uh, he snapped and 
if he realized what he had done and, and couldn't live with himself, I don't know. I'm not gonna try to. I'm not gonna try to get into his head. Uh, obviously, a monstrous act, killing his girlfriend. He had a daughter, and now that daughter is an orphan. Uh, doesn't have a father. Doesn't have a mother. Uh, tragedy. Now, you know, as to what made Belcher snap, we'll know more when the autopsy comes out. What was in his body? You know, uh, he's never suffered a concussion, at least according to record in his pro career. I don't know about his record at Maine. I don't know in high school. Hell, Pop Warner when he was a middle school kid or, you know, I don't know. I mean, but even if Belcher hadn't uh, officially suffered a concussion, I, I, I think it's pretty fair to say he's been hit in the head a lot over the past 10 to 12 years. And I don't know. And that's as we've shown over the past handful of years is not good for your body, not good for your mental state. Not at all. Um, was he on steroids or other performance enhancing substances? Did that have to do with him snapping like this and killing his girlfriend and mother of his child? I don't know. I am sure we'll find out about that when the autopsy comes out. And when the autopsy does come out, we'll pivot it and talk about the NFL and, you know, it's player safety and concussion awareness and drug awareness. And I'm sure we'll pivot it to talk about that as we should, because we should use tragedies like these to talk about greater societal issues. If we're not going to use something like this to talk about an issue like, say, gun control, then how are we ever going to legitimately bring it up in conversation? Bob Costas spoke about gun control in his 90-second soliloquy on Sunday Night Football in primetime on NBC. He quoted a portion of Jason Whitlock's column on FoxSports.com. Take a listen to Costas's audio, then I'll briefly react on the other side. In the aftermath of the nearly unfathomable events in Kansas City, that most mindless of sports cliches was heard yet again. Something like this really puts it all in perspective. Well, if so, that sort of perspective has a very short shelf life, since we will inevitably hear about the perspective we have supposedly again regained the next time ugly reality intrudes upon our games. Please. Those who need tragedies to continually recalibrate their sense of proportion about sports would seem to have little hope of ever truly achieving perspective. You want some actual perspective on this? Well, a bit of it comes from the Kansas City-based writer Jason Whitlock, with whom I do not always agree, but who today said it so well that we may as well just quote or paraphrase from the end of his article. Our current gun culture, Whitlock wrote, ensures that more and more domestic disputes will end in the ultimate tragedy and that more convenience store confrontations over loud music coming from a car will leave more teenage boys bloodied and dead. Handguns do not enhance our safety. They exacerbate our flaws, tempt us to escalate arguments, and bait us into embracing confrontation rather than avoiding it. In the coming days, Javon Belcher's actions and their possible connection to football will be analyzed. Who knows? But here, wrote Jason Whitlock, is what I believe. If Javon Belcher didn't possess a gun, he and Cassandra Perkins would both be alive today. Now, Costas has since apologized for his commentary, but I don't really see what the problem is. Those 90 seconds at halftime on Sunday Night Football are his to speak about what he wants to speak about. And he can do what he pleases with that time. 
And, you know, people say he hijacked my football game. He didn't hijack your football game with a 90-second commentary on gun control at halftime in which he only spent roughly 45 of the 90 seconds actually talking about gun control. The rest was a wrap-up of the incident over the weekend. So, he didn't hijack your football game. And if he did, I'm sorry. But sometimes issues are greater than football. And it happened in the, around football. It dealt with a football player. So it is relevant to football to an, to an extent. <laughs> Excuse me. And should be talked about on an NFL broadcast. And as I said earlier before the clip, if we can't use real-life examples as jumping-off points to discuss serious societal issues like these, then how can we do it? You know, we have to talk about these things. So give me another way to broach the topic of gun control. You know, when uh, the representative from Arizona, Gabrielle Giffords, was shot a couple of years ago. You know, people said, oh, can't bring up gun control then. Really? We had a congresswoman just get shot at a supermarket. Can't bring up gun control or that shooting in Aurora, Colorado this summer at the Batman movie. You know, oh, can't talk about gun control. That's insensitive. Really? It's insensitive? Really? But it's... But it is, but it isn't insensitive to say if everyone had a gun in the theater, you know, maybe lives would have been saved. That's not insensitive. But to say if nobody had a gun, lives would have been saved. All right, that's insensitive. Yeah, real good logic there. Look, I'm not. I don't use the show as a political platform. We all have varying political beliefs. If you want to talk politics with me, I welcome you to email me. I'd be happy to discuss it with you. It's a great interest of mine, but not appropriate for the show. But I just broach the topic here because, well, how is he going to broach topics like these? You know? I mean, if you can't use issues like these to talk about societal problems like gun control, how else can you do it? Bob Costas was certainly not in the wrong. You may have disagreed with him, but he certainly was not wrong. Moving ahead to our third down segment, quick segment here. It's the big up slowdown. I say a statement and then affirm my agreement or disagreement with that statement by saying big up or slow down. Big up, slow down, number one. Should Mark Sanchez play another down in New York this season after he was benched for Greg McElroy last Sunday and McElroy threw a touchdown pass in the red zone? Can you believe it? Big up or slow down? Um, slow down. That's right, slow down. Sanchez should not play another down for the Jets this season because they know what they have in them. Try McElroy. You have nothing to lose. Get a look at your future. I know nothing about McElroy. You know, a lot of Jets fans talk about they've been following him for years. I call BS. I don't think so. Maybe, but I don't think so. I'll say up front, I know nothing about Greg McElroy. Outside of seeing a few highlights. Outside of seeing him roll out and find the tight end, Cumberland, in the end zone for the touchdown. But I'll say this. That's better than anything I've seen Mark Sanchez do over the past several months. Um, Seriously. And after the game... Rex Ryan said the Jets have an above-average quarterback situation with three good QBs. Really? They do? In what league? Certainly not the NFL. Maybe in the CFL. Maybe in the Arena League. But you couldn't be talking about the National Football League. Hey, maybe Ryan was confused. I don't know. Maybe the season's man a little delirious. Rexy over there. I don't know why Rex Ryan protects Sanchez. He hasn't named a starter for Sunday, and I don't know why. I mean, if I was Rex Ryan, I wouldn't be able to look Mark Sanchez in the eye. This is a guy who I've hitched my wagon to, and he may get me fired at the end of the season for not improving and, in fact, regressing 
As for next season, you eat the $8 million or whatever it is you owe Sanchez. Yeah, it's the cap hit, but you can take a cap hit. Find a way to work around it. You know what you are with Sanchez. If you retain Sanchez and Ryan, you know what you're going to be. You're going to be 6-10 and 10 or 7-9. and nine. That's what you're going to be. And you're going to have another season of controversy, another season of whoever the backup is, if it's McElroy, Tebow I can't imagine would still be around, but you're going to be 6-10, and 7-9 and nine at best, with a whole heap of controversy and a lot of ugly, unentertaining football games. One of those two has to go. And Sanchez shouldn't play another down with the Jets this year. The Chargers lost 20-13 to the Bengals last week. Did they hit a new low, low point? Big up or slow down? I did say last week I'd rather be the Chargers and the Eagles going forward. Um, I still stand by that, but I am going to say big up here. The Chargers did hit a new low point. Cincinnati turned the ball over three times in the first three quarters. Uh, then Phillip Rivers threw an interception in the red zone to kind of seal the Cincinnati victory in the fourth quarter. Uh, I've mentioned it several times before. What? has happened to Rivers. That remains one of the biggest unsolved mysteries of the NFL season thus far, and it doesn't get any easier for San Diego. They play Pittsburgh with probably a returning Roethlisberger this upcoming week. Final big up or slow down topic. Big up or slow down. Andrew Luck, after another comeback victory, should win the MVP. Now, I'm a huge Luck guy. You know that. So you're probably expecting me to join the rest of the cheerleaders and say big up, but I am going to swerve you here. And say, slow down. That's right, a swerve. Slow down. Andrew Luck should not win MVP. He's been great. He has gravitas. But he hasn't been Tom Brady great. He hasn't been Peyton Manning great. The Broncos continue to get better. The defense for Denver now, I think, is much better than it was earlier in the season. Von Miller had that big interception last week against Tampa Bay. Um... Denver is legit. They are another legit team to look out for in the AFC, which quietly, you know, I know the NFC is deeper, but Houston, New England, Denver with the way they're playing, I would take those top three teams against almost anybody in the NFC. Or anybody in the NFC, with no, no need to preface it. Um, Adrian Peterson has single-handedly kept the Vikings on the uh, peripheral, if you will, on the perimeter of playoff contention all season, and coming off injury makes his story even that much more impressive. And J.J. Watt, as I said, with the injuries on Houston defense, the big lone play, the big playmaker there, leader of that defense, which has been quite good this year, uh, he should be in the conversation too. But really, I think it comes down to Brady and Manning. Voters may tend to vote Manning. It'd be a last FU to Tebow, number one, which a lot of football writers are still intent on doing. Uh, and also, you know, you love the Manning MVP and with the way the Broncos' offense has evolved this season, it'd, it'd be very difficult to argue that. But, excuse me, as I battle a, a cough here, um, Brady certainly deserves a lot of MV, MVP consideration as well. It's amazing the more things change, the more they stay the same. Here we are another year, another Brady-Manning MVP conversation. It is the fourth down segment Time to close out the show with style. And we close out the show this week with the Reamer rant. Now, I'm talking about grown men who, when they talk about football or watch football, turn into teenage girls at a Justin Bieber show. What I mean by this is, here's this record, right? Drew Brees' consecutive touchdown record was broken last week by the Atlanta Falcons, and the Saints lost to Atlanta on Thursday night. 
Uh, Breeze will look to start a new record against the Giants this upcoming week. Now that Breeze's record has mercifully been broken, Brady is now on pace to break it in the middle of next season, and as someone who lives in the greater Boston area, I am dreading that day. This is the most meaningless record ever. The consecutive touchdown record. What even is this thing? You know, if you can't throw a touchdown pass every game in today's league, I get news for you. You suck. I mean, this should not be a record worth talking about. Every quarterback worth a damn should have this record in his back pocket. I mean, if you can't throw a touchdown pass every game you start in the NFL this year, and with the way the league is going, you blow. I mean, you really do. This record is not worth talking about. It's an ESPN creation. In the sycophants follow suit. Yeah, here they come again. We talked about them last week. They're back this week. The grown men who act like little girls at a Justin Bieber concert. Oh my god, look at this record, consecutive touchdowns. What are you talking about? What are you going to tell me next? How many points Breeze got for you? Oh, you're upset that Breeze's touchdown record was broken last week because it was the final week of fantasy football and your play and you missed on your playoffs? Well, well, guess what? I missed on my playoffs too because Brady didn't have a good week against Miami statistically, but... I don't talk about it because it's irrelevant. Fantasy football is not real football. Records like these are fantasy stats. And it's for all these hero worshippers to go gaga over. It's ridiculous. It's made up. Honestly, the way people wet themselves over nonsensical records like these is absurd. It's made up. What does it even mean? Nothing. I just don't get the infatuation. And, you know, people who are obsessed with these kind of things, these phony baloney records, are the same people, and, you know, the grown men who act like girls at Justin Bieber concerts from Talking NFL, they're the same people who call athletes by their nicknames. You know, yo, you see that catch Megatron made on Thanksgiving? Whoa, what a, what a catch, huh? Megatron, no, his name isn't Megatron. You're calling another man Megatron. His name is Calvin Johnson. Now, I'm guilty of it too to an extent. You know, I... Made a conscious effort this week, because I knew the rent was coming, to refer to Robert Griffin III as Robert Griffin III. But in the past, I've split. and I, I, I've, you know, I, I've, I've said RG3. I have. I've gone back on my word. And some t- you know, if you listen to my Red Sox podcast without a curse, when I'm talking about David Ortiz, sometimes I slip up and call him Poppy or Big Poppy. But I make a conscious effort not to do that. And with Griffin, I will continue to make a conscious effort, because... I don't know Robert Griffin. I don't know David Ortiz to take it to baseball. So I'm going to call them by their actual names. Not some ridiculous cuckamani nickname or acronym. You know, why does everything need an acronym? Uh, you know, yo, I'm bros with Gronk. No, you're not bros with Gronk. You don't know Rob Gronkowski. His name to you is Rob Gronkowski. You're not bros with him. You are a dork. That's what you are. You're not bros. You're a dork. You know, and basketball is bad, too. Black Mamba is Kobe's name. Black Mamba. The Durantula. Stat is Amari Stoudemire's. Give me a break. You are a grown man. And you're going to call another grown man the Durantula? Seriously? Now, there is one that has become accepted into pop culture and into sporting culture, and that is Irvin... Magic Johnson, and I, like everyone else, call him Magic. And I admit, I'm a hypocrite on that. And we all make fun of Michael Wilbon and the uh, basketball ESPN halftime show, and I only watched that last year because the uh, Celtics were deep in the playoffs, so, you know, want to get as much coverage as possible. And Michael Wilbon, 
to his credit now, when I think about it, always called, you know, Magic Johnson a uh, Irvin. You know, Irvin, what do you think about the first half? Irvin, what are the keys to the second half? And people ridiculed him. What were you calling him Irvin? Well, because Michael Wilbon has it right. He's not Magic Johnson's pal. He's his co-worker, his colleague. So thus he calls him by his real name, Irvin. And if Michael Wilbon, who knows Magic Johnson far better than you will ever know any professional athlete in your life, doesn't feel comfortable enough to call him Magic and instead calls him Irvin, there's no way in hell you should be comfortable enough to call any grown man something like Megatron. Thank you for tuning in to an impassioned edition of the Football Nation Today podcast, episode 28. As always, if you have any thoughts on the show, we encourage you to leave a comment on the show page right here at footballnation.com. Also, feel free to send me an email, areamer at bu.edu is my email address. Also, feel free to follow me on Twitter, at alexreamer1 is my Twitter name. Again, at alexreamer1, search me there. You can follow my daily nonsensical musings and self-promotion and all that good stuff. Thanks for listening, guys. I really appreciate it. Uh, We'll be back to talk about the next week in NFL action uh, next Wednesday. So long. Talk then. Looking forward to it. Talk next, next Wednesday, December the 12th.